This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 9 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Bloody hell, I've been doing this a long time now, haven't I? That's a lot of episodes. A lot of episodes. Um, thanks for still being here with me. Uh, I hope you're having a good week. I've had that cold that's not COVID for nine days. And I feel... I felt pretty horrific earlier in the week. I'm starting to feel a bit better now and I've had to work all week as well. So I've now got some time off so I will have a chance to recoup and feel better. I feel like everyone's had it. So if you've had it, I, I know how you feel. I hope you're feeling better. Um, we've got a brilliant conversation coming up today. Oh, David Carlyle, who I fell in love with, with It's a Sin. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I fell in love with him during this conversation as well. I better let Alice know. Didn't we have a lovely time chatting? I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did um, having it. But before that, we, as always, we have our listener emails, which are brilliant. Oh, there's one more thing that I want to say. So many of you have come to my tour shows. So many people have waited behind and said hello and done a quick photo and mentioned that they like the podcast um people when i did the devon dorset run reading last week i met some gorgeous people uh, it really means a lot to me um that you all enjoy the podcast so much and that you'll come along and support my stand-up as well uh, so thank you so much for that i've got two more tour shows left i've got one in portsmouth this coming friday which is friday the 3rd of december also i mean i don't know if i've got any listeners in oslo but on the 4th of December, uh, I have uh, a show at the Spectrum in Oslo that I'm doing with an outrageously good lineup. Uh, Michael McIntyre, Dara O'Brien and a bunch of others. If you live in Oslo, maybe come to that. Maybe let me know if you're going to come as well and we can say hi. Uh, but I've got, as I said, the one coming up in Portsmouth, which is on the 3rd of December, and then also one coming up in Banbury on the 10th of December. And then that's it. This show is done. I'm hoping that I might be able to film it at some point, but uh, that might be the last chance you get to see this one. So if you want to come, please do. I know that I've got a listener of the show who lives in Germany that is coming over and is making the trip down to Portsmouth to see the show, which means the world to me. So I'm looking forward to meeting Evelyn after uh, the show, or rather before the show on Friday. Uh, so yeah, come along. It's been an awful lot of fun getting back out doing stand-up, which is something that I just absolutely love doing. Right, shall we get on with the listener email, Suze? For God's sake, can you tell that I'm a, bit, I'm a bit all over the place? I'm a bit, I'm a bit, I'm a bit all over the place. I think you probably can. And I feel like I've got sort of a husky voice that might do sort of late night radio. But, which I'd quite like to do actually. Anyway, right, here we go. A big old thank you. 
Hi Susie, I wanted to drop you a quick line to say thanks so much for this podcast. It has been the biggest bit of joy since it landed in my life. I love hearing the stories of each of your guests and I think it's a sign of your skill of how safe they feel when they are with you. And you manage to really get to the centre of someone's journey in a way that is never pushy and is always shared with honesty and compassion. That means the world to me. Thank you so much. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm a cis het woman, and whilst I've always thought of myself as a supporter of the LGBTQ+, my own ignorance has often acted as a barrier to being vocal. I've often feared that it was not my place or I didn't want to ask intrusive questions. But this podcast has educated me on a variety of experiences and I've since used it as a way to support my LGBTQ plus friends and even open up conversations with older members of my family who have had some quite challenging viewpoints. I want to add here, it really worked with my aged uncle who has gone to apologise to his neighbour for his reaction when they told him they were having kids. That's the thing, you're never too old to learn. You're never too old to put things right. That is lovely. Anyway... I know in the scheme of things this is small but I just wanted to say thank you for my favourite pod of the week and for helping me to support especially my trans and non-binary friends better. All the love Katie and then she's given me a recommendation of some people to look up which I promise that I will. Thank you for saying those things Katie. Uh, your message really meant a lot. You've really got to the heart of what I'm trying to do with this show and so I, I really love that you get it um, so thank you for writing in. Right here we go let's have another one. Um, Hi Susie, I knew that I was gay when I was six years old. Picture it. It was 1974, the roughest part of Kent, in Medway Town. I remember being in Chatham High Street. There was a giant billboard showing a male underwear poster. All the guys were in Y fronts. Yep, dad pants. All of them had shoulder length hair and big moustaches. I knew at that moment that I really liked men. I had a happy childhood. My parents were very modern for the time. I remember seeing two men on TV kissing and my mum said, Sometimes people of the same sex fall in love and that's okay. Sadly, my mum died when I was 10. My dad remarried and we moved away. I was very badly bullied at my new school for being gay. I was painfully shy and I didn't make any friends and I'd walk around the playground alone. At 17 in 1985, I was training to be a chef, but I couldn't come out to my friends, even then because there was a fear that gay men could pass on HIV through their hands onto food. So gay people were being sacked from the hospitality industry. At that time, I fell in love with a 24-year-old guy. Nowadays, he might have called himself bi or polyamorous, but back then, he was just so scared of anyone finding out. It all had to be a secret. The age of consent back then was 21 for gay men, so he could have gone for prison with sleeping with a minor, even though I was 20 by the end of our relationship. In the end, he left me for what he called a normal life and got married and had kids. In the same year, in 1989, I came out to my parents as gay. I was very lucky. My dad and stepmom were completely supportive. My parents were very open about me being gay and wouldn't allow anyone to be homophobic towards me. I think what the TV show It's a Sin reminded me was a sense of community we had back in the day. The Medway Towns had a gay pub and a gay club and they would have been a safe haven for gay men, lesbians, bi and trans people all mixed together. At the time, gay men were hated. I often had abuse shouted at me in the street or I was spat at and a couple of times I got gay bashed. When Michael Cashman went into EastEnders, they had a cartoon in the sun with a gay man with a limp wrist and the title was EastBenders. Tories were arguing if HIV was an excuse to make homosexuality illegal again. Instead, they chose section 28. At my first HIV test, the counsellor told me I should find a nice girl and settle down. I said, I don't fancy women. And he shook his head and said, I should at least try. Ugh. 
By the 90s, I was working as a chef in London. Act Up and Stonewall were fighting back and I decided I should be out at work. This went very badly as I was asked to get changed in the toilet because the other male chefs were uncomfortable getting undressed in front of a queer. The manager's words, not mine. I decided to be in the closet for my next job, but I got outed by someone. The manager interrogated me for an hour, asking repeatedly, was I gay? Did I have AIDS? I pointed out that I was in a monogamous relationship and using condoms, whereas the other chefs were sleeping around with girls and boasting about not wearing condoms. So they should be asked if they had HIV. This made her furious. She was screaming at me and banging her fists on the desk. There was no HR in those days, no protection. I got so badly bullied by her that every job I had, right until 2012, I remained in the closet at work, but fully out to everyone outside the workplace. I'm now happily married to an Australian guy I met in London. We live in Australia on a tiny farm with our goats, chickens and cows. I really enjoy your podcast and your podcast with Tom. I listen to them whilst working on the farm. I have to say it does sadden me the hatred a lot of your guests seem to face, especially bi and trans people. I loved that pub in Medway when I was younger. All the gays, bi's, lesbian, trans people, even a few sex workers, all together, all looking out for each other. It would be nice if the LGBTQI plus community could be a little bit more like that nowadays. Keep up the good work you do. Love, Russell. Oh, Russell, I'm so pleased you got your happy ever after with your Australian guy on a farm. It sounds so lovely. When I got your email, it actually made me so emotional, The oh, just how much you've had to fight for so long and it really made me think about all the gay people that have come before me that have done all that hard fighting and being out and having to take all that shit and then having to sort of closet yourself for safety in the workplace and things like that and you know thank goodness that you guys were brave enough because it means people like me who, who are a few years younger can have an easier life so thank you Russell thank you for getting in touch and I'm just so chuffed that you've got your lovely life in Australia now in your farm and I hope that as you're listening to me saying this you're sort of feeding your chickens or something um yeah wouldn't it be nice if the community could be a little bit more like that these days that's a lovely image of that pub with lots of different types of people there all feeling supported all looking out for each other I really think we all should be doing a bit more of that but I know that if you're listening to this podcast you're in the gang you're in the gang where we're all looking out for each other um thank you so much to all of you that get in touch with me it really means the world the emails the tweets the instagram posts nothing goes unnoticed the people that wait for me after shows it really means a lot to me as you all know this podcast is very much a passion project for me and uh i do it pretty much by myself with my producer and you know it's a lot of work but it's so worth it when i get emails like that one from russell um one more quick thing a documentary that i'm part of aired on the BBC on Friday um, you might have seen it or you might have missed it if you've missed it I'd love you to watch it it's uh, it's on the iPlayer and it's called Womanhood and it's me and a bunch of other brilliant women talking about what it means to be a woman in the 21st century it's really interesting conversations there's conversations about the trans debate as you will know I don't like that it's called a debate because I don't think we should be debating people's lives but I went and spoke to some people that are very anti-trans I spoke to a woman and I found it really really hard but I thought you know the thing they always say is you know no one ever has a conversation about this people are always just arguing so I thought okay I'll go and have a conversation and I really hope anyone that's trans that watches it feels like I was an ally and feels like I was a friend to them uh, when I had to do that interview and maybe it will change some hearts and minds because 
that's that's all we can do anyway if you've got a chance i'd love you to watch it it's called womanhood and it's on the iplayer right now let's go to listening to me fall a little bit in love with david carlisle and to be honest if you were having this conversation with him i think you would have too here we go here's the lovely david well listener before we even start this conversation today i feel like i need to make a bit of a confession because I fell in love with our guest at the start of the year. David Carlyle's portrayal of Gregory or Gloria, a young man living and dying during the AIDS crisis in London in Russell T Davies' It's a Sin, was gentle, urgent and heartfelt. I don't know one person who watched It's a Sin that didn't cry when Gloria was lost to AIDS. The subtleness of his performance there was a moment where he was lying on a sofa in his in his little living room that is just etched into my brain the beauty the 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 sadness the friendship I just think his portrayal was incredible David is a true talent but not just known for it's a sin he's an actor that has been in theatre for years and years and years and obviously now I mean, I think it's about to go stratospheric. And he's just been nominated for a Scottish BAFTA as well. What a joy to have him on the show today. Hello, David. Hello. That's such a lovely introduction. I don't know what to say now. With the podcast, I only have people on that I really want to talk to. So I'm always very, very genuine at the beginning. But I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into its sin and all this stuff. But that moment in your little flat when your dad came up and oh man it was so yeah, oh it was, a, it was a pretty brutal day that you know doing yeah i bet it's actually two days because they had the location for yeah for two days and we had to shoot some at night and it was, a, it was definitely an intense like yeah it was actually 48 hours really but the t- you know when you start getting into that zone for it oh when it was over, I was like, oh, thank goodness I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, that had been sitting on me for months, but I was really pleased with the way it came out. And yeah, it was brilliant. I just really remember like lying there on that couch. That scene with Gary Lewis and Sarah McCarty, mm-hmm. played my dad, Gloria's dad and sister. And they were like just so warm and friendly. And it was really difficult to feel that level of hostility. I think as well, because I hadn't really had many Scottish people on set either. So I just really enjoyed like having the troops there. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then we're having a great time and it's like, okay, now we need to go dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like not not a little dark. <laughs> Proper. Let's turn it the whole way yeah, down. The stakes don't get any higher really, does it? It's life and death there for him. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Often with this interview, we sort of go chronologically. So let's maybe start at the beginning. Whereabouts in Scotland did you grow up? So two locations. Um, <laughs> the first was... Cumbernauld, which is mm-hmm. a suburb of Glasgow, made famous in a film called Gregory's Girl, which you may, I mean, not have heard of. Uh, oh my yes, God. I've heard of that. And literally, like a lot of that was filmed outside my house. Not at the time, you know what I mean? Like in the past. <laughs> yeah, so that was where I grew up till about 10 years old. And then we moved to another suburb called Hamilton which is just outside, yeah, Glasgow. And that feels like my hometown more because that was uh, my adolescence and formative years. And that's where I went to high school. And it feels like high school's when everything becomes real. <laughs> uh, so that was it, yeah. And then I, then I was gone. At about 18, I skipped down to Liverpool for a year and then we came and ended up in London. So I've had a kind of varied life, I feel like mixture of influences. <laughs> 
I think that's true. I think that when you're in your teenage years, you sort of become more aware of your surroundings, don't you? It's not just school and home. Totally. It's everywhere you can get to without your parents knowing. That's exactly <laughs> it. Exactly that. I was just thinking that it's the train, isn't it? Like, because you, you're, you're old enough to get on the train or a bus. I mean, bus was sort of because it was going to school, but the train station and then going into Glasgow, the big city, and wandering up and down Sucky Hall Street or Buchanan Street, it was just at 14, 15 years old, you just feel like a king. Queen. Yeah, I love I've gigged in Glasgow a lot over the years. And I and I really like it. What does it feel like as a, a hometown? Because it's there's a lot of warmth in Glasgow, but there's also a slight edge to it. <laughs> yeah. Is that fair to say? Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it definitely makes you a bit streetwise. Mm-hmm. I sort of realise that I'm from Glasgow now when I'm walking with my mates around town and maybe something kicks off and I just don't even blink at it. It's sort of like I expected it to be rowdy and I sort of know how mm-hmm. to, my cells can deal with that. Whereas like my other mates sort of panic a little bit and they clam up and they start to, they're, they're fully alert. Because I've, I've maybe got a, a low fight or flight threshold <laughs> because of Glasgow. But I mean, I loved it. Like it's not, I, I never felt unsafe particularly. And I mean, maybe... A little bit, you know, when I was really going out in clubs and things and I was a little bit older. But, yeah, I never felt unsafe. I think it just made you a bit streetwise. Like, you just had to... Yeah. And your sense of humour is very different. So you don't take offence to confrontation. It's just what it is. Like, it's we're quite direct people, I think. And that can make us really honest, I think, which is good. It's interesting that you mentioned humour because there's such a rich tapestry of Scottish comics. Yeah, yeah. As someone that's sort of deep into stand-up. yeah. Even, you know, there's obviously ones that are sort of household names, but if you just go to a comedy club totally. in Scotland, there's people that you'd have never heard of yeah. that are fantastic storytellers. That's the thing, there's isn't it? There's a real it? history of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think people really latch. That's what happens in your kitchen. Um, you know, from the moment you're aware of your parents hanging out in the kitchen or, or and then aunts and uncles drop in and out and it's just, oh, you'll never guess what happened to so-and-so and then this happened. And, then, mm. and do you know what I was doing? And everybody's embellishing a story not to make it a lie just to kind of really flesh it out and so I think it's just it's bred into you from a really early age I went to see Larry Dean the other week oh yeah I know Larry oh my I love him um I'm sort of hoping that we're going to be friends soon like do you know what I mean we can sort of keep oh I can organize that <laughs> okay please yeah <laughs> we sort of keep sort of saying oh we'll maybe try and get a drink but we're always sort of too busy or in different cities at the time um but when I go up actually for the this BAFTA ceremony um I'm hoping to kind of try and catch him. I think he said he's going to be in Glasgow. Uh, but I love him. I think he's he's such a cool modern day Scottish comedian because he seems to be quite vulnerable mm-hmm. and can really go in for the, the Scottish brash storytelling, but equally owns himself and just and, and doesn't try and hide his vulnerabilities, which I think is what maybe the storytelling and the humour can do for a Glaswegian is you're able to cover mm-hmm. up with it. He doesn't he doesn't do that, which I like about him. No, there's a real sort of softness to Larry, oh, yeah. even he's though cool. he's quite brash. Yeah, he's acerbic at times, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. Absolutely. So what were you, obviously sort of acting in theatre has been um, a huge part of your life. When you were growing up, was that something you were, were you aware of theatre? Were you aware of like the Edinburgh Fringe, which I know wouldn't have been that far away? Were you in that world at all? I was always involved in theatre and I was always involved in acting. Mm. I think my mum saw that I was a bit of a show off and uh, and thought I need to kind of find an outlet for this. And so just put me into youth theatres. I mean, from a really early age, I really, really remember about being, I don't know, four or five. It was 
it was very early and she told me I was going to this thing on a Saturday and I wasn't sure. I was like, well, I don't think I want to because it just was meant leaving her, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she said, no, you get to be like Mr. Bean. <gasps> oh, okay. <laughs> this sounds good. I mean, he must have been my first hero. <laughs> I still love Mr. Bean. But like, yeah, I must have been totally obsessed as a kid with him. And then I started out and that was it. And I was just really good at it, I think. Like, I think I started to learn people liked me or rather liked me telling them funny stories or doing little bits, mm. you know, parents and friends and things. And then it sort of it, fairly natural progression, I think, into youth theatres and the odd kind of professional show as a child and like pantomimes and things in the city centre. So you had that that bug sort of from an early age. If you're doing sort of professional stuff in town, that must have felt sort of quite thrilling yeah. outside of school to be like, I've got this other life. Yeah, it did, yeah. God, yeah, it really did now that you mention it. It was always that thing that people wanted to know about, and that was kind of fun. I remember doing mm. a bit of telly as well, like by accident. I don't really know how that happened, but I ended up doing like a, a kind of pilot of a sketch show, comedy sketch show on ITV or STV. That was sort of amazing getting out of school for a bit, going in a black cab, you know, picked up from my home to go to set. I mean, that was just whoa, you know, at 12 years old. So I was definitely involved in it. I, I'd have to say I wasn't aware of the Edinburgh Fringe. Like it was a very small kind of awareness of, of I know I want to act. I know I'm good at it, or at least I think I'm good at it. And people like when I do it. Uh, and that was it. I, I wasn't aware of the outside world of it. And to be honest, I actually took my foot off the gas pedal around about 15, 16 because of exams. I really wanted to make sure that I I focused on that. I was quite academic as well. I sort of was split kid where I was very academic. And then equally, all I wanted to do was hang out in the drama studio um, and mess around. And, and similar, I suppose, with music. I, I, my school wouldn't allow you to take drama and music you know, together. It was so stupid. So I had to choose one or the other. Um, but I remember early years loving music. It feels like a fairly natural progression, but it was just a very small kind of world of it. And it was only when I then started going to drama school, I realised, oh, my goodness, like, there are a lot of people who are good at this. <laughs> uh, a lot of people who are much better than me. <laughs> I had the exact same thing, I think, because I was in theatre and Amdram and I was, you know, one of the quite good ones. Mm-hmm. And you sort of go to drama school thinking, well, guys, I suppose <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be one of the good ones here. And you're like, oh, no, I am decidedly average here because everyone is the best one in their town. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And they've got far more to say about everything than I do. They're much funnier. They've lived better lives. Ah, <laughs> what am I going to do now? <laughs> Were you popular at school? I sort of was later on. I was prom king, I remember. Mm. Oh, yeah. How the hell did that happen? Later on, yeah, I was not early, early school. I was tortured in early years, uh, as in like first, well, it's first and second year in Scottish system. So I think that's year. Eight, whatever the beginning of secondary school is. Seven and eight, it okay. would be for us, yeah. So seven, eight, maybe into year nine, first, second, third year. Uh, it was rough. I had a few friends. Uh, I was sort of on the outskirts. Uh, I was bullied a lot for being something different. Uh, mm. <laughs> I didn't know quite what that was at the time. Were you aware of a- anything about what it was that people noticed? No. Nah. I thought it was because of the fact that I was into drama, you know, and that mm. I was maybe 
outspoken at times and I didn't really have a filter. I didn't I didn't learn what to do to fit in at that point. I was still learning that. And I probably, if I'm very honest with myself, it was probably the experiences of being bullied that formed almost a manipulative way of, of being able to get myself into situations and not be bullied. <laughs> and so therefore I, I sort of conformed. Uh, it sounds like I'm some sort of sociopath, but um, I just learned how to conform, I think, you know. I don't think it's a sociopath. I think it's... <laughs> Learning how to survive. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's a defense mechanism and and you how to Yeah. How to calm down. Yeah, just sort of going, if I if I play by these rules, mm-hmm. I'm gonna have an easier day. That's it, exactly that. Yeah. And perhaps to the system of the way that you're separated later on in school by ability, and I was able, uh, so I was always in the kind of top sets or whatever, that meant that I was ended up in a crowd who were more of uh, more interested in things I was interested in, I guess, mm-hmm. right? So that was sort of half of it too. Whereas in the early years, you kind of all just lumped in basically on the the alphabet of your surname. That class happened to be, I think, a little hostile. And so I definitely struggled. But I just sort of knew that I was, all the stuff that made me popular at home with my parents and my aunts of being a little show off and uh, telling stories and making up little skits and stuff, that didn't make me popular <laughs> in the first, second and third year. That, that made me weird and strange and someone to be picked on, it made me a bit vulnerable. So I definitely found that tough. I was really pleased when we started separating into the mm. top sets, middle sets and lower sets, because it just meant I could kind of get away from, and just focus on work, yeah. Sounds bad, but yeah. I think it's that thing of, I mean, now as an adult, and I know I've said this before on the podcast, so listeners will be like, we know, Suze. <laughs> but as a teenager, I really hated n- not just my sexuality, but just everything that was sort of otherness about me and that like, I like showing off, I like being funny. I mm. wasn't good at the normal things that people were meant to be good at at school. And I really hated that stuff about myself. And then now as an adult, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that I've got all these different things yeah. that I'm good at. And I'm, I'm, I like, really like being gay and I really like being different. Yeah. But I think that in those first years at school, you're just like anything to fit in. Oh, yeah. Now we're recalling it. My stomach starts to tense up. I just mm. hated all that stuff about myself. And, you know, I, I've buried it so deep that it's taken me years to, to discover it again. Like, I have to say, even the, the opportunities brought about by it's a sin, things like, like this, having a conversation, or I did like a radio show at one point and I presented an award ceremony. Those sort of stuff I was actually really good at, but I buried down as if like, mm. don't, sh- and that, I guess maybe that's why I lent on characters so much and became a, I'm using air quotes here, like a straight actor, um, mm-hmm. because then I could disappear into the character a bit and hide behind that, whereas now I'm starting to talk more about me. And I've I definitely have been finding that an anxious process, I think. Really? Yeah, hooking straight back to my teenage years of having to f- hide my true kind of feelings and thoughts and uh, not something like cliche, but my kind of true voice of myself. I, I sort mm. of feel like, I, yeah, it's all coming out again. And I have to remind myself it's an adult and the world is safe and you don't have to worry about that now. You can be you. <laughs> it's so strange. But there's a vulnerability to that, isn't there? There's a vulnerability to such sort of raw honesty. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah. that's exactly what It's a Sin did. So I think that, you know, me coming on the call with you today and messaging you being like, can I chat to you for my podcast, please? But like there's a, <laughs> because it was so honest and so vulnerable and because it was so overtly queer and I think so many queer people watched it and was like, 
well, that's not my life, but it could have been my life mm. and they could have been my people. Mm-hmm. It feels like, even though you're an actor, we feel like we know you. Mm. We feel like, and I guess because of it being like queer history, there's like a shared collective, oh my God, that happened to mm-hmm. our people. Yeah. That yeah. there must have been, like showing that vulnerability, I'm guess, guessing people know when they talk to you are like, well, be vulnerable, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. must be quite exposing. Yeah, I think um, I was aware that like this story was so important. And I I was also aware that, so Gregory was real, uh, I think Mancunian actually. Mm. And I mean, I didn't get into this too much with Russell because I couldn't sort of take it all on board. I had to just play what was on the page, Russell T Davies, I mean. Um, but I was aware of his parents perhaps being alive still, or at least his family. And so then going, I need to do this really honestly. And so I did really try my hardest to pour myself into it because I thought this is the only way in here. So I would tap into moments of shame that I maybe felt and, and tried to just unleash it through I mean I, I did my best like and I think it went all right but oh you did a fantastic job <laughs> thanks since I was fishing for a compliment but you just never know no, no, you're, but... you're just like pouring it out and going okay let's see if this comes through I'm not sure and then it's never up to you anyway because then it goes to an editor and you're like okay well exactly. then I have to let that go because yeah. that's it okay please look after me in the edit <laughs> exactly and it's my first big experience of television that freaked me out because I've been so used to being in charge of the whole craft of my character's story, whereas then going, there's everything I've got over to you. Uh, that, that's mm. weird. Our director, Peter, came in because we all trusted him so deeply that you kind of knew he would make sure that what we discussed and what we'd shown would be handled sensitively. But I mean, yeah, like I did try to be as vulnerable as possible. So it was it's no surprise to me, I guess, then that it's that people, and so did everybody, you know, we all did. We all discussed those things, like how do we get, as truthful as possible here. And we encouraged each other on with that. So it isn't any surprise that people feel that. And plus it's a very emotive story. So I completely understand that it's it's had an impact. But yeah, it can then you turn up to something and people are being very vulnerable with you. And then you want to be very vulnerable with them. But then you leave that situation and go, oh, that felt great. But also, oh, I'm not used to doing that <laughs> all the yeah, time. And I'm sure people have been sharing stories with you hmm. of their experiences at at the time and mm. things like that, which must be really hard to sort of go, well, you've told me this very sad story and now I'm going to pop it in my bag and carry on with my day <laughs> yeah. because I have to go to an audition or do another PR thing. Yeah, a little. But it's a, it is a privilege more than anything else. Like, Yeah, I, of course. And and people, when they tell that their story like that, they're, I sort of know they're not looking for anything from me. They just feel emboldened to tell that. And I think that's mm. lovely. And I feel really privileged that they feel safe to do that with me I should say the other thing is that I'm really enjoying it because when It's a Sin came out we were in full deep winter lockdown so we were all on our phones hearing this mm-hmm. so it's only really been in the past I don't know four months or so that I've been able to have conversations with people about it so that feels lovely you know to actually talk yeah. to somebody face to face rather than just get a message out of the blue on Twitter and go I can't really put a face to this and it, does, it felt disconnected, whereas now I can actually connect with people, which does feel lovely. Because I think that is that is the core of me, as somebody who does want to connect and does want to talk to people and, and does want to be vulnerable. I just sort of, like, school probably taught me to keep it locked up for a bit. Perhaps also to the Glaswegian, like, mentality of dry your eyes and get on with it. That That is a, a useful lesson in life, but 
it can also shut you down a bit. And so this whole experience is definitely opening me up, <laughs> which is a good thing. And I guess with theatre, you channel that vulnerability th- through the, the framework of a character. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of get stuff out. Yeah, exactly. But sort of do it in quite a safe space where my line, your line, my line, <laughs> your line, and it's all very contained, isn't it? And it's not recorded, so it's over. So you can throw everything you've got at it and be as vulnerable as you like, and then you can always deny it. If anyone says to you afterwards, you go, I didn't do that. No, I, didn't. <laughs> I don't cry. It's not what you're talking about. <laughs> it's never recorded. That's what I love about it. <laughs> it's a sense there for everyone to see. <laughs> oh, I mean, and everyone has seen it. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. <laughs> I didn't really know anyone from, like, my mum ringing me and being like, them poor boys, them poor boys, oh. to, like, all of my queer friends, to all of my straight friends being like, you must have watched it. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, just everyone. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? It is. It's really special. And Russell is fantastic at creating those sort of almost like a timepiece in history mm-hmm. of like, oh, yeah. that's a snapshot of what it was. Because it, it was the same in his show Years and Years that I just thought was fantastic. He's extraordinary. He really is. Yeah. I, I had absolutely fangirled him at the Attitude Awards. He's like, <laughs> hello, Russell. We have a load of mutual friends. My name's Susie Ruffle. Okay, I think you're brilliant. Bye. Um... <laughs> he's the loveliest chap though, isn't he? He's like yeah, he's really, really nice. warm Bear. And he sort of went, oh, you're Susie Ruffle. Yeah, I, I I, know you. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Bye. Like, I was like, I don't want to take your time up. Yeah. Always <laughs> oh, lovely. I was, I was a few glasses of wine in as well. And I was like, go in, say something nice, piss off. So you don't have to wake up tomorrow morning going, what did I say to Russell T. Davies? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> when you were saying about tapping into Gregory and tapping into that shame... Was that something, because shame is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast and sort of in doing this podcast and in sharing these stories, I'm hoping that maybe the shame is relieved for some that mm. listen and maybe the next generation that grow up, not because of this show, but because of the, how the world is changing, mm. will maybe have less, I've often called it like a backpack of shame where you're just sort of always aware that it's on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah. And as I get older, I sort of take out bits all the time in the hope that by the time I'm 80, I'll be able to like, oh, I've taken that bag off. Yeah, right. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> but was that something that you were aware of when you were that schoolboy? Were you aware of whether it was sort of, whether you were sort of really aware of your sexuality then or not? But were you aware of that sort of feeling of shame? No, no. I, to be honest, I wasn't even aware of it until my early 30s, <laughs> until someone put a name to it and was like, that's what this really? is that you're feeling. Because I guess for me, like, if shame is like a core feeling of a core, I am bad, I am wrong, rather than I did bad or I did wrong, then its symptom for me is hypervigilance, I believe is the term, mm. where mm. I'm always thinking something bad's going to happen <laughs> to me, I think. And so I'm constantly aware of threat. That's what I learned at school, is I learned how to be aware of the worst case scenario and how to plan and prepare for it and avoid it, <laughs> I think. So if you're always sort of looking literally around every corridor for the the bully that's going to kick you or something mm-hmm. uh, or hurl abuse at you or chuck something at you. It's, it's, I'm so, it sounds a bit like I'm playing the violin. It was bad, but it wasn't like... It just it felt like it's toughened me up, you know. So actually, I'm grateful mm. for it in the end. I think everybody, if they if they breeze through school without that kind of adversity, I'm not sure what kind of an adult it can make you. I think there's a lot of strength in it, but I think you I literally became aware of 
you know that looking out and then and then because of that I you start to in the quiet moments god love me but at night in my room or wherever I'd go what, why is this happening to me what what is it about me that's the problem the answer was nothing but you start to really look for that and then you latch on to it and I'm sure there's probably other things as well like very early childhood memories but I just was never aware of it being a shame I honestly God did not understand that word until my mm. late 20s early 30s and now I understand what it is and how it manifests itself with my life you know I gave up smoking recently I've actually given up drinking as well smoking was the big one though because I was hooked on that oh my god I was a passionate smoker I remember like spinning out mentally about that and I was speaking to I see a therapist fairly irregularly now thank god like it's sort of worked all of that and she said basically your shame doesn't know where to go anymore because you were able to put it all on that and go I'm a bad person because I smoke I'm a drain on the NHS or a potential drain on the NHS or I'm making my mother feel sad so that that's, and then I took that out and it didn't know where to go. So then I started like beating myself up about like, I don't know, anything else for a while. I went, that's ah, so this is interesting. What it is. It's not, it's just one of those things that seems to latch on for me. Where, where can I find a moment to make you feel shit about yourself? That's what shame is now. Mm. And I guess that was uh, formed at school when I was questioning what was wrong with me and why I was bringing this on myself. <laughs> I never really saw it as the bully's fault, I saw it as mine. That makes sense. God, that's quite a complicated yeah. answer. Yeah. Oh my Susie, God, sorry. it makes total. No, 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 no. It makes total sense, and I align with so much of it of, of of what you're saying. I think that it's it's something that is so hard to because I was picked on at school, and I would blame myself and go, "It's because it's this, it's because and that." And then I think after a while, as an adult, and I too have had therapy, you sort of go, "God, I'm ever so hard on that 15 year old." I know. Yeah. I'm so hard on that person. Like she didn't want any of that. I know. And, you know, I think sort of forgiving that teenage version of me mm. actually was, it, that sounds very like American therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've just got to, you've just got to forgive that teenage version of yourself. It sounds very much like that, but there is something to be said for that. Mm. And so what age were you when you were aware that you were gay? And then when did you sort of say it out loud to someone else? So... I started becoming aware of it probably around 15 years old, or at least I started to go, oh, that's why you like hanging out with all these boys. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily the banter because I didn't really understand what the hell they were talking about, like football, what the fuck? Oh, sorry, my language. Uh, football. No, you're totally fine. Okay, fine. Uh, football, what the heck? Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I, d I sort of felt different about Britney Spears than they did. And, you know. <laughs> and I felt different about Britney Spears and how you Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And the circle's complete. And there we are, yeah, we got it. <laughs> we got there, Susie, we did it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that would, yeah, 50, 16, I start going, right, okay, that's what's going on. And feeling like, I remember going, oh no, because that's all those things the bullies had said to me was maybe starting to be true. Um. Because I remember them saying, you know, you're gay <laughs> when I was younger. I'm going, I'm not. Why do they keep saying that? I don't understand. And then, oh, they were right. <laughs> and I had to really come to terms with that. I remember saying it out loud to myself in bed one night when I was 17 years old. I really remember that. It was a moment of, and it sounds so dramatic. God, what a little gay boy. I was so dramatic. Like, I could have said it. <laughs> and uh, I lay in bed, just said, I'm gay. That felt 
scary but it felt necessary and from that point on mm. I think it started to get a bit easier rather than try to chase it away or it becoming a compartmentalized thing I only allow myself to think these sort of thoughts at this time or about that mm. oh it's not so mad the bargaining you do yourself anyway so then it got good and then uh, I didn't come out at school because that would have been suicide so I left until I got to drama school and then that was so much easier mm. although I do you know I was I was dating who's now one of my best friends I was dating my roommate it was a girl and I came out to her and that was really like rough for us both and I think it was a bit of a shock for us both that it kind of happened and but the guy that I then got with uh, is now my fiance, who I live with. It's such a like strange. I think I just was so like this. It was almost like I saw him. I remember the first time I saw him and went, "You're really fit. I need to come out because if I don't, there is no chance that I'm going to be able to get with you." <laughs> so <laughs> I came out, and then we got together. Then then we didn't see each other for five years, and then we bumped into each other again, and now we're <laughs> in a long term relationship. That's so lovely. It does work out, you know, if you just sort of follow your nose and, and be led. But I remember, yeah, it was 18 years old that I started coming out. And I think it was probably the last year, I won't say her name, who I was dating at the time, that I think she was the first person I told. Because I had to, it felt, I must tell her because I'm dating you. And I came out of drama school as well. And it was sort of the best place in the world to come out because everyone was like, fine. Mm. <laughs> um, but how was it sort of the, the wider, like your friendship groups, your, like your family back in Glasgow? Was it, was it like, did you have to sit down and have a conversation with them? Were people surprised or was it, you know, how was that for you? Yeah, it, I had to, I said to my sister first, who then said, you need to tell your mum or her mum. Uh, and so I told my mum, she was ironing at the time I remember and I said I need to talk to you and my mum's a warrior anyway she put the iron down and said okay fine what is it and I said I'm gay she went oh thank god I thought you were dying <laughs> oh bless her you know I think because also in hindsight I seem to remember having been to the doctors that week for something probably like an allergy whereas but I yeah. think she thought oh my god you know he's he's dying <laughs> so that was her she was fine I mean it was probably a bit of an adjustment I'm sure and knowing that she that I wanted to tell other people and that she would be part of that because it was going to be easier for her to tell my stepdad, for example, mm. just let him kind of adjust to that. He was totally supportive and fine. My stepbrother's actually gay too. And so for them, it wasn't that big a deal. Like they'd already been through it. They must be so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents. No, no, just your family, just from It's a Sin. I mean, I don't know, it's such a special show that they just must be so proud of you. I wonder, yeah. I've never really, I don't know, you just kind of, carry on don't you just one of those things that happened I think I mean yeah like you can tell my mum gets a buzz out of like ooh, people talking about things <laughs> and like all this exciting stuff I get to do now and yeah she loves that and yeah they must be proud of I'm sure they are yeah they're very supportive of everything and yeah they've always been supportive to be honest and I still have quite a close relationship with my biological father as well I told him he definitely struggled a bit I think he just hadn't seen it at all I think, I think it mm. completely blindsided him I'm like, God, do you even know me? Like, <laughs> like, it's so obvious. But he was definitely a bit in shock about it. And But has been nothing but supportive. I mean, he completely loves Jason, my partner. I mean, he sees him as his second son. So I was lucky, you know. I think well, there was moments, you know, where it definitely felt like I was... Nobody wanted to talk about it quite as much. You know, that was definitely like, okay, fine, look, I accept it. But I don't really want to go into conversations about it. Uh, <laughs> but it just took them a few years and then... 
they've calmed down. And it's the same, it's been hilarious because it's like if we took my mother and stepfather has been, I think, I don't know, doesn't bother them. I can imagine from my dad's side of the family who's just a little bit more conservative, perhaps, just slightly. Mm. And it's, it's quite a small community, you know, where they really all know each other where they live. I can imagine for them it's been a bit of a okay, he's done that show, has he? <laughs> like, you know, they couldn't hide from the conversation. So I definitely landed it at the doorstep, perhaps. But, you know, we all need to step up. <laughs> and what an important conversation. Yeah. Just going back to It's a Sin, because lots of the queer men and, and women, actually, that, that have been on the show mm-hmm. have said how monumental Queer as Folk was to them. It's the same with me and the L word or mm. moments in uh, Ally McBeal and Sex in the City, which were briefly queer ladies <laughs> running downstairs, turning on the telly, putting the sound down really low. That's Did it. you have a moment like that with Queer as Folk? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I actually remember it was it was almost, you know, one of those dodgy like shows where it's actually quite good, where it's like 100 greatest moments or something. I remember being alerted to Queer as Folk on one of those. So I think I was a little oh. too young to have been aware of it. I think I was maybe sure. 12 or 13, just it slightly passed me by. Being alerted to it a couple of years later on one of those. And I think it was one of the, like the, the hottest, or the most romantic scenes or something. And it landed there and it was it was that, I was too, definitely too young to be watching this moment, but the bit where Charlie Hunnam's character is, rimmed <laughs> like that's the yes. first time that i think ever yeah. happened on television and i'm going what's that that's what what's going on you know that was <laughs> i really hope the show that you're remembering is most romantic moments and they were like this rimming scene is yeah. just honestly it's the sort of thing that you talk to your gran about just like a great <laughs> romantic moment in history <laughs> I, I, I wonder what it was probably 100 sexiest moments at well but even yeah. then i don't know because then that was the the early noughties would it really have been sex maybe it was shocking moments or something maybe Maybe that was it. Who knows? Maybe, but like for, for sake of argument, we'll call it the most romantic moments. I, I prefer romantic. Yeah, a good <laughs> rimming scene. So <laughs> I remember seeing that going, whoa. Um, and going, I must watch this show. And watching it, it was it was years later I managed to watch it start to finish, but it, there must have been a rerun on because I remember watching it in my teenage bedroom and watching that with the sound down. So that was a big moment. And I told Russell about that. It was, like, it was life-changing. It alerted me to... There is a a community in Britain, and this is what that community could look like. But Will and Grace was the big one for me, really. That was mm. that was okay because it's so huge. It was an enormous show about gay people, but it, it also felt a bit detached because it was an American sitcom. Whereas Queer as Folk definitely, definitely like felt grounding. There was another show which actually was really harrowing. Have you ever watched it called? It was like a one part or two part drama called Clapham Junction. Oh yeah, yeah, that's really harrowing. <sighs> yeah, that's brutal. And I remember what I was eighteen when that when I saw that. But that was my mum and stepfather had just gone to bed, I think, and I was sitting sit in the living room. I must have been up there for a summer or something, and um, it just happened to come on, and I thought, oh, what's this? And watched it, and I remember watching it low volume because I just didn't want to be kind of, I remember going, what is this? And that freaking me out a bit. Mm. But also being uh, like, okay, this is, it's important for me to know this. I felt like I had to, I had to become aware of it. So I've had this sort of, yeah, kind of strange education of gay culture before coming out, which was Will and Grace, Greatest Folk, and then that. I mean, everyone should, everyone should watch Cotton Junction, but it is like trigger warning, you know, it's 
tough. Pretty harrowing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but a, a, a good piece, I think, important piece. It's funny that you say Will and Grace, because I think that was probably one of the first things I watched where gay people were happy Mm-mm. and there wasn't That's an so overshadowing of like queer bashing, AIDS, yeah. everyone hating you, That's what <laughs> not it having is. a relationship with your family. Like there was something about like, oh, these are people just living their lives yeah. and they're fun and yeah. they've got jobs <laughs> yeah. and they've got, because I feel like so much of that, like often on Channel 4 after 10 o'clock at night, mm. there would be these shows on that were like, here's another very sad show. Yeah. And obviously those shows need to exist and mm. they're important. But it was, it's quite a relief when you see something that's like, oh, it's a gay story that has a happy ending. Yeah. Like, oh, great. <laughs> That'd be really nice. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, perhaps that's what made it almost a fantasy for me. <laughs> so going, mm. oh, like this, only um, a kind of rich lawyer in America in Manhattan can be funny and have a nice mm. life. Not this little boy from Hamilton in the outskirts of Glasgow. Maybe that my life's going to be tougher. And so... Yeah, maybe that's why it felt fantasy to me. Yeah, you're so right. God, I never thought of that. It is pure glee, isn't it? But I tell you, mm. also, I mean, I, I, being an actor too, I remember just thinking that, in particular, Megan Mullally and Sean Hayes, Jackie Karen, were are just the most amazing actors. Uh, they're up there with my heroes. I just think how they did that, I mean, amazing. And they're most courageous people too, I think. Put, particularly Sean Hayes to put himself in such mm-hmm. a firing line. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think that they, I when I watched those shows before, sort of getting into acting, I remember just thinking, they must just be having so much fun. Yeah, no, yeah, that's like it. it's a trick that they've managed to do this as a job. <laughs> yeah. How do I get in on this? I know. This yeah. Is, this is not work. This is fun. How do we do that? I'm still looking for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you saying about you going up to Russell on set and saying what Queer as Folk meant to you. Mm. Do, have you considered at all that people will be saying that to you in 10 years, that you were in this sort of monumental, sort of groundbreaking piece of queer television that sort of opened a conversation about a pandemic during a pandemic? <laughs> but, you know, that... that because I think people have been really aware of the AIDS crisis and there's there's fantastic plays like A Normal Heart or mm. The Inheritance that are brilliant, but it was such a mainstream piece. And I mean that in a very, 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 very positive mm. way, but that my dad watched it, who's mm. like a geezer. Mm. <laughs> cool. and, and it sort of opened uh, that conversation. Like, have you considered at all how you sort of played a role in that? No, to be honest, I mean, <laughs> I really haven't. When you said it, I thought, oh my God, yeah, like, I really haven't. Because it's just, it was a job, you know, and like, it was a mm. job that I really loved doing. And, and I think it's really, really important to say too that none of us expected this, and including Russell. He texted us all week one after it came out and went, just to make you aware nobody has anticipated this. And he said, for goodness sake, I did Queer as Folk and Doctor Who, and I have never experienced a storm like this. It it was unusual. Uh, mm. And so it's a baptism of fire in that sense for us lot who, who haven't done a lot of TV, because you're like, okay, I'm all of a sudden in this seminal piece. Whoops. Yeah, that's been kind of unusual to get to grips with. I hadn't considered that, that you know, that I'll be talking about it. For years really <laughs> probably that feels really good yeah of course it's special and important that those conversations keep happening you know i think that quite often 
with with lots of things in queer history but you know a lot of you sort of go well it's fine now it's fine now or people try and tell you that it's fine now mm. often people that are not in mm. the community themselves and it's important that we remember the sort of generation that was lost mm. and all those stories that were lost and 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 not just to people that like physically died of AIDS but also you know the women that were there that couldn't live their lives the trans people like I just think it's it's important to keep those sort of conversations happening. I think also too with that, that, that so we did a week's rehearsal, Pink Palace 5 plus Gloria did a, a week's rehearsal in a library. <laughs> Basically, it was just us sitting around talking about our sex lives. And then and Russell was there with Peter, our director. And the big thing that Russell kept impressing upon us and then continued to throughout, Russell's also amazing and that he somehow has the time to watch every single shot from the day before and then text you about it <laughs> and have a full-on oh conversation. Like, I mean, I don't... Well, it's because he's got the TARDIS, isn't it? That's what Ah, got to that's it. Of course. I didn't think of that. The TARDIS. He's what a clever yeah, man. Yeah, just move between time. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly... I mean, how does he... Because I didn't have time to even text him back and I'm like, I'm literally only doing one job and you're texting all of us. He was always in touch. Always. And the big thing that he talked about was this was such a fun time in our lives. And so really wanted to make sure that that came through with the show. And we just then made sure that we were having an absolute ball while filming it. There was obviously the scenes where we had to focus and, and take it down. But I think that's what he was keen on, was that there was just a period before AIDS made sex dirty and dangerous and deadly that, oh my God, listen to my alliteration. Dangerous, dirty and deadly. <laughs> Look, we were all very impressed. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, but there was a time when it was just fun and everyone was having sex with everybody else and, and, and what was wrong with that, you know, and, he, and everyone was having the best time of their lives. And I sort of hope because we all need to be careful I mean, everybody needs to be careful with the sex now, but we, but there, it's not what it was. We can take preventative medication mm -hmm. to stop ourselves contracting HIV. We can use condoms and then we can have as much fun as we like. And I think that was almost part of what that was about too, was going, it was really fun. You can still have fun. <laughs> like, yes, yeah. there was a story to tell here of those that we lost, I think, but he just felt very keen on, it was a, it's a story of joy and friendship and community, which is what I think, we need to hang on to as well as because that what otherwise you know what did those poor people pass away that we want to give them a legacy which is we'll be all still have fun and still love each other and be kind and their legacy can't just be sadness exactly it's exactly that well said yeah listen we're coming to the end of our conversation i've enjoyed this so so oh, much yeah, thank too. you so much thank you the, the final question is is what i ask absolutely everyone that comes on the show and maybe i'm thinking about that version of david that was in his bed saying aloud to himself <laughs> i'm gay <laughs> and if there was someone listening we have lots of people that listen to the show that are, that are young people or or people that are older that, are, that have recently come out and lots of people that have had lots of different similar experiences. But if you could reach out to that version of yourself then or a young person that's in a similar position right now and just give them a few words of encouragement or some advice, what would you say? I just spent so much time worrying like about what was going to happen to me and were people going to like me, were my family going to like me. Was Even now I sort of half worry like because I'm really out is that going to have a problem with my ability to earn money? Like, am I still, do you know what I mean? Will I, will I not be able to play the parts that I want to play? 
it's exhausting. And so I think like, if I could just go back and see that younger version of myself, it would be, do not worry so much. You're going to be fine. I know it sounds so cliche, but you will be fine. Like, and, and I also don't want to say, like, if, if I could speak to my younger self, I'd be like, you sort of need to go through all this crap because it's going to really make you quite a strong person and quite resilient. And I quite like myself as a man in his 30s. And so I, I don't want to take that away from him either. I want, I think there is going to be adversity and that that is going to make you really strong. And so if there's somebody at 16, 17 years old who's panicking, going, oh God, I don't want to be gay, like, come out, you're going to be all right, have the sex you want to have, you'll form brilliant friendships and you're going to be so strong for it. I don't know one idiot queer person. I don't know of an idiot queer person. I know maybe a queer person who makes a bad decision every now and again, but they are complex and detailed individuals. Like, <laughs> So, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Like, You're going to be all right. Just hang fire. <laughs> don't panic. <laughs> that is the perfect way to end the show thank you david so much for giving me your time my pleasure it's been so lovely thank you for having me thank you so much to, for listening to today's episode um i absolutely love david i'm pretty sure you do too now if i'm honest if you want to get in touch with me you always can the email is hello at ruffle.com i'm on twitter i'm on instagram and just a reminder that documentary that i mentioned uh womanhood it's on the iplayer i'd love you to watch it I don't know if people ever listen to this bit. Are you still listening? Are you? Okay. Well, maybe I'm talking to nobody right now. Who knows? Anyway, I'll be back next week and hopefully my voice will be less croaky. Um, Have a great week and I'll chat to you later. Okay, bye-bye.